This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Good evening, everybody, and welcome to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome into the program on this Thursday. As always, I'm your host, Caleb Colquitt, and we've got another Alabama coronavirus update for you. So we'll go ahead and go to the latest statistics from the Alabama Department of Public Health. Let's go ahead and check that out right now. There we go. So you can see we have 8,898 confirmed cases. So uh, really inching closer to that 10,000 mark, probably within the next week or so, we'll wind up hitting that if we continue at a pace that, that seems to be relatively... It's hard to predict because it's been so up and down, but if we continue on the average trajectory, we'll probably wind up hitting 10,000 either late next week, maybe early the week after that. You'll notice also that we have 1,100, or sorry, 115,173 tests that have been orchestrated, 349,000, or sorry, 349,000. Man, I cannot read today. I don't know. I guess I'm just in a rush. 349 deaths due to COVID-19, and we have 1,178 hospitalizations resulting from the Wuhan flu. So let's go ahead and dive into these numbers. Let's look at the new cases on a daily basis here in the state of Alabama. Now, you'll notice that today is substantially up from yesterday, but considering that just two days ago we had the single biggest one-day gain of coronavirus cases, it's actually a little bit down still, above average, compared to what we're used to seeing over the past few weeks. So... Today is definitely not a day to celebrate, considering that it's still, I believe, the fourth largest single day that we've had since we started keeping track of this thing. So, uh, still thinking that this is primarily attributed to people getting out more. That seems to be what is going on, just based on what I understand. People are moving around a little bit more. And here's another thing that you also need to keep in mind, that... This also may be the result of not only more people going out and interacting and actually getting the virus, which of course that last graph looks at, it may also be that more people are getting tested even though there were people that may have been staying home that had it and because they are moving around a little bit more out of an abundance of caution, they're starting to also go and get tested more, which by the way coincides with the increased numbers of testing that we're going to look at in a second. But the important thing to remember here is even though I... I I am in the, the boat of saying that we need to start opening up the economy, that we need to start getting the ball rolling on this thing. It's still very important for us to remember to be cautious as possible. It's kind of like, and a lot of people have equated this kind of risk, and I think it's an appropriate metaphor, I'm not bashing it, that we need to equate this to a risk of just walking out your front door or just driving around. I mean, there are thousands upon thousands of people that in the state of Alabama uh, die of automobile accidents and, and all around the country, Americans that die of automobile accidents. And so that is a risk. That is something that you deem the reward or the possible gain from getting into an automobile. You deem that threshold of risk lower than the benefit that you get out of it. Most of life is actually a cost versus risk analysis. I mean, that's a, 
Uh, that's a very common thing, is, is it just a part of the human experience. But here's the thing. Just because you accept that risk, and I think that it is your right as a free American citizen to do so, just because you accept that risk doesn't mean that it's a good idea to engage in unnecessary risky behavior. For example, I agree, getting into an automobile to drive around, that's a risk. You are essentially believing that whatever you need to do, wherever you need to go, is more important than the slight chance that you may go out and wind up getting hurt in an automobile accident, and that makes sense. But the thing is, that doesn't justify doing things that make your risk more likely to take place, like swerving all over the road or not wearing a seatbelt, which won't really decrease your risk of an accident, but it will increase the risk of you dying if something were to happen and you did get into an accident. And so there's a difference in exercising freedom and just being reckless. Because I think that it's actually a good thing to exercise your freedom if there is some kind of benefit that you can come up with from that, if, if you're doing it in a way that benefits you or benefits other people. And I think right now opening up the economy would definitely fall into one of those categories. But it is also important to remember that with that liberty comes responsibility. If we're going to go out, and I think that we should be allowed to go out, that if we are going out and interacting with people, we also need to remember to not engage in risky behavior and make that activity more risky than it needs to be. Things like wearing masks, like keeping your distance, like not doing things that would uh, put you in very close proximity with other people and limiting the time that you're out as much as humanly possible, that's actually going to not only be beneficial to you because it mitigates your risk to a great degree, but more importantly, I don't know about more importantly, but certainly of great importance, I'll put it that way, is that it will be a signal to other people that, yes, citizens can be responsible, they can be trusted to make decisions, and because, you know, not getting sick benefits them, it is something that we can trust the average citizen to make smart, responsible decisions on. That's going to go a long way in helping convince people that these things need to be open. Now, there is a class of people at this point, many of, of the people in the media, many of the people on the left that have basically determined at this point, and it's not all people on the left, but they have basically determined that even suggesting that we need to open any time before December makes you an evil, reckless, heartless Nazi that just wants to kill all old people. Which, by the way, I find this hilarious because usually the same people that are extreme on that and try to make that claim also claim that these same people that are, are evil and reckless and just want to get everything open, that they're all just a bunch of right-wing Trump supporters. Which also doesn't make sense, because if you are a Trump supporter, the dumbest thing that you could want to happen is to kill off your old population. That's one of the stupidest things you could do, because that tends to be the people that voted for Donald Trump. So it really doesn't make any sense, this accusation that the people who are out there protesting and out there saying that we need to go ahead and open the states, open the economy back up, that, one, those people are a bunch of evil, heartless people that just want to kill off all the sick and elderly, and then, two, also were a bunch of rabid Trump supporters. Now, maybe one of those things could be true, but both of them definitely couldn't be true at the same time, considering that that would pretty much sink 
President Trump's chances at getting reelected. Maybe he could get reelected either way, but I mean, the, the demographics from the previous election show that that would be highly, highly unlikely if all of the old people just died off and Trump was left having to curry the votes of younger voters. That just, I mean, granted, considering that Joe Biden's 186 at this point, that, that doesn't really help him either. And especially when you consider that it was primarily older Democrats that voted for him. But still, if you're just looking at it, whether it's it's a generic Democrat versus Biden or Joe Biden specifically versus or sorry, uh, whether it's generic Democrat versus Trump or Joe Biden specifically versus Trump, the older that demographic gets, the more likely President Trump is to prevail. And so that claim really doesn't make any sense. Let's go ahead and look at another statistic real quick. Uh, that goes over the new testing in the state of Alabama. These are tests that are administered by the day. So you may notice there that our testing is about now right back up to where we kind of expect it to be, close to around the average of what we've seen over the past few weeks. It's closer to a normal day of testing. But, I mean, that chart, it's hard to even determine a real average, to be perfectly honest, because everything's so all over the place when it comes to that, but we saw a dip in testing the other day. It seems that that has definitely springboarded. You're, you're seeing over double the levels of testing that we saw yesterday. I'm not really sure exactly why that rebound, but it's closer to what would, would be considered average based on what we've been seeing here recently. The important thing I want to hit home about this one is, yes, I think that we need to continue to do testing for the Wuhan coronavirus, but it's also incredibly important that we add antibody testing to this. And I know this is a new thing. I know that it's hard to roll that out on a mass scale in such a short amount of time. I get that. I'm not saying that, you know, I'm disgruntled with the way that that has happened and that that, that, that has not happened yet. But that needs to be a very high priority, if not the top priority. Because, of course, we want to know who has the virus because they can know not to spread it to others. They can know to go ahead and self-quarantine themselves and also for their own health and safety as well. But it's also incredibly important that we go ahead and do lots of antibody testing. And the reason that I say that is if you know it because of the antibody test that you've already had this thing, you're not really susceptible to it or at the very least not as susceptible to it as the average person then that means that you would be able to go either back to work or to be able to engage in normal activity at a greater level because you're not going to get it and not going to presumably be a carrier of it or at least are very unlikely to. And if you want to really open up the economy, that's the thing that you need to do. And another thing, which I think is even more important, is it will give us a better sense using this data, of how lethal this thing really is. Because if we find out, like they did in New York, that roughly 50% of the people already had the thing, then, I mean, that brings that lethality rate basically into the basement. Now, it's still higher than it would be for the, the flu, the regular influenza, but... I mean, that's going to go a long way in not only helping public perception, but far more importantly, it gives us a better idea, better data to work with medically on how to treat this thing, how to respond to it, and, and gives us a better understanding of, of how contagious it is. Like, There's so much good that comes from antibody testing, and even as somebody who I, I have no reason to believe that I ever had the virus, I would take it. And, and by the way, they're working on new take-it-home tests 
for this, that you would pay for yourself and, and you just get the test and mail it in and they tell you whether or not you have the antibodies for the coronavirus test. I'm not sure exactly how that works. I, I only took a cursory look at it, but if they can get that out there, I mean, by all means, let, let's do our part and, and try to do that as much as possible to try to help us understand how many people actually had it and whether or not this is going to be something that we can look at going forward and, and you know, have a pretty decent idea of who is likely to catch this thing, who isn't, and how deadly the virus actually is. Now, let's look at the hospitalizations in the state of Alabama. These are the new hospitalizations for today. And if you look at those, you can see that hospitalizations are actually going down. Uh, not much to say on this one, other than it's, of course, a good sign that less people are needing to be hospitalized for this. And, you know, that's that's something that definitely is a positive Um being low in the middle of the week like this, though, is what's really a good sign, because you'll notice this being a Thursday, the fact that it's this low in the middle of the week, and, and hospitaliza hospitalizations are a lagging statistic, but they're not nearly to the level of a lagging statistic as deaths are, because deaths can come, you know, one to two weeks after we know that the person has the virus. Hospitalizations usually only trail by two or three days. And so the fact that hospitalizations are actually really down is a very, very good sign. Another thing that it would be important to note in this is that if you'll look at that graphic that we were just looking at, the new hospitalizations, I want you to contrast this graph to the new cases. You see that really, really big spike that we were talking about a couple days ago? And you'll notice that here we are, three days later on hospitalizations and hospitalizations are on a downward trend. That's really good news because what that means is presumably, and, and maybe we have a giant spike in hospitalizations tomorrow, that, that's a possibility. But if we're here three days after the spike and all, all signs point to our hospitalizations actually going down, there's a couple of different things that that probably means. First of all, it lends credibility to the theory that I was floating yesterday that a lot of the new cases that we're getting, there are people that have the coronavirus, but they're not people that are going to be in dire need, people that are going to need hospitalizations, that these are typically people that had been sheltering, sheltering in place, that were young, were healthy, didn't have risk factors, or maybe even already had the coronavirus. Well, you know, they, they wouldn't test positive for it if they had already had it. But people that um, had, had been sheltering in place but really didn't need to, or were being a little overly cautious when it comes to something like this. So if those were, if that was the case, and these were the people that were at low risk, and we're confirming that more people have the coronavirus, but less people are needing hospitalization, what does that mean? Well, it means that these people are going to have the virus, they're going to be sick, I mean, some of them may be asymptomatic, but, you know, the a bunch of them are going to get sick. And then they're not going to need hospitalization or to be a strain on our healthcare system. That's a really, really good sign. Because if that is the case, and we'll have to watch it over the next few days to see if that trend follows, that means that most of the people that were actually going to need hospitalization or die from this thing probably already have. 
And if that's the case, then that means that most of the people that were already sheltering in place... Now, of course, there are some people, actually like myself, that have risk factors and probably need to, to hang out in our apartments and quarantine a little bit longer than the average person to make sure that this thing is really under control. But as far as the people that don't have those risk factors that are under 40, especially, but really under 60, but especially anybody under 40, they can get out and about again. They can start going back to work. And, and that means that they, those people, those are the ones that are contributing to the increase in cases, not people that we have to worry about getting really sick or dying. Maybe that's not the case. But it certainly would seem so based on the data. And by the way, this coincides with a new study that was done in New York that uh, was surprising to the governor and actually went on and on about it the other night on TV about how surprised he was at this. And what this study shows is it shows sort of the demographics of people that have been hospitalized due to the coronavirus. So you'll notice that other is 8%, nursing home is 18%. That one's not a surprise that that's a really high one because, of course, people in nursing homes are older, they're more susceptible to it, so they're more likely to need hospitalization. And then you'll notice that pretty much everything else is really low with the exception of people that were living at home and staying at home. Now, Governor Cuomo just looked at this and, and said it was just shocking. Well, it's really not that shocking if you break it down and think about it for a second. That the people that were staying at home, that were sheltering in place, made up the majority of the hospitalizations. Now, for one, we have to put this out there. You don't even have to really think hard about this. This should be obvious. The vast majority of people are people that were staying at home. Uh, that, that's just a no-brainer. That the vast majority of people that got it were not people that were in prison or homeless or living in a nursing home or in an assisted living facility, the vast majority of people, not just people that got hospitalized, the vast majority of people live in their homes. And so, like, it, it's really not a shock that that is the case. People that were staying at home, self-quarantining, that the bulk of that made up the hospitalizations just because there's more of those people. I mean, in, in the same sense that you, you wouldn't be surprised if you were taking something broken down by racial demographics and finding out that the vast majority of hospitalizations were white people. Well, that's not surprising. Yes, it may be affecting people of minorities at higher rates than white people, but there's still more white people than everybody else, and so it would make sense that the vast majority of hospitalizations were made up of white people. This is not something that is hard to understand, but, you know, Governor Cuomo's a little slow on the uptake, as we've been seeing over the past few months. But... The other thing that's important to note here is that most of the people at home, most of the ones that are self-quarantining, they do have risk factors. Like people that are just staying at home and self-quarantining, those people have risk factors too. Granted, not as widespread as a nursing home or an assisted living facility, but still there's going to be, since the vast majority of the population falls into that category, then you're also going to have the vast majority of that population being the ones with risk factors. But it also shows that most people are staying at home and are self-quarantining. And that really should be a reason, sort of a lesson, in understanding that all these people that had risk factors and need hospitalization, most of those people were staying in their homes. 
that they were being responsible and, and the virus just wound up getting to them anyway. But because the vast majority of people were staying at home, the ones that needed hospitalization also made up a bulk of that statistic. And there's one other thing that I don't want to rely heavily on this or say that this is a reason we should throw out this statistic, but it's something to note. What you could be experiencing here, and part of the reason that that number might be slightly inflated, is what's known as the flossing effect. Now, I made that, that term up, but here's what I'm talking about. Whenever your dentist, now I don't care, but whenever your dentist asks somebody whether they're flossing or not, usually the answer is really no, but the person in the chair tries to make it sound like, yes, actually, I have been flossing because they feel almost like they're getting in trouble. With my dentist, I don't care. Like, <laughs> when my dentist is like, you haven't been flossing every day, have you? I'm like, well, uh, Doc, you were here the last time I was flossing, so <laughs> you should know. I, I'm surprised you don't remember that. But anyway, uh, that may be what's happening here. So when, when Andrew Cuomo looks at the statistic, is like, I'm just shocked that people that stayed home and were self-quarantining were the ones that needed hospitalizations. Well, the ones staying home were probably the ones that knew they had risk factors, and when they got it, of course, they needed hospitalization. But it could also be that the people that got hospitalization, they were embarrassed and didn't want to tell doctors when surveyed that they had been breaking curfew, they had been going out. That could also be a significant contributing factor. I don't think that it would in any way negate that, and especially since 66% is an overwhelming majority when it comes to something like this, that that would have enough of an effect to skew the numbers in a different way. But the, the flossing effect may, you know, make a 5 to 10% difference of people somewhat exaggerating how dedicated they were to staying at home and self-quarantining. Maybe that's the case. I don't know. But... One thing that is important for us as Alabamians to remember is that just like when we say that a healthcare system or a law, you couldn't transplant it directly from a, a state like New York to a state like Alabama, the same is true here. New York is incredibly densely populated. And so I imagine if you took a similar survey of people that have been hospitalized for COVID-19 in Alabama you'd have a smaller percentage of those people saying that they're staying at home for a number of reasons, but also because the people that are staying at home that do have risk factors, they're less likely to catch it in Alabama because we're not piled on top of each other in Manhattan. And if we stay at home, we're at significantly less risk than a person that self-quarantines and stays at home in an apartment building with a couple thousand people. Like, that's a completely different scenario, completely different makeup of how we li we live in our lifestyles and our ability to quarantine from certain things. And so I, I think that that number would probably be drastically decreased if you took the exact same survey for hospitalizations in a state like Alabama, Mississippi, Arkansas. It's, it's just more dangerous in a place like New York. So, uh, that being said, uh, there was one last thing I wanted us to look at, and it is the death rate. So let's go ahead and look at the, or not the death rate, the new deaths in the state of Alabama. You can notice that those are also down. We saw a little bit of a spike yesterday, but it's actually gone down to below 10, which is a good sign because you remember we were talking about yesterday, that upward trend was looking kind of scary, and, and it was 
looking like we may get up to a point to where we're seeing 30 or 40 in a single day, and, and that is seemingly not the direction that it is heading in. We saw a pretty big drop-off for today, and that's probably going to get even better over the weekend. If history is any teacher, we just don't have very many coronavirus deaths over the weekend. So the important thing here is to remember we've got to keep a close eye on this one, especially about a week from now, because that'll give us a good indication of whether or not this spike was something that is going to contribute to the death toll or not. So be sure to look at that one a week from now. Uh, most Alabamians, I think, are poking their head out a little bit at this point, and the statistics kind of show that, but the statistics also show that doing so is less dangerous than a lot of people would have you believe because it seems as though the people that are going out, even the ones that are getting infected and it turns out they do have the virus, which, of course, those numbers are going to go up when you have people moving around. We always knew that. We always expected that. But it seems as though that that is significantly less dangerous than originally advertised as, and that really is a good sign. There's been stories popping up all over the Yellowhammer State about people that are saying, look, we're ready to reopen, we're going to go ahead and do it, and, and people actually defying Governor Ivey's new safer-at-home orders. One such person is Annette Harris, who is the owner of the Rumors Deli in Coleman, Alabama, yesterday, and, and they're a lunch place. Deli, you could kind of guess that. They're a lunch place, and they opened up the doors from 10 a.m. to 2 p.m. That's it. But they did open up their doors. They did allow people to come in and dine. And they served about 30 people yesterday. So not exactly a, you know, a gangbuster crowd. You didn't have people just hovering on top of one another as they're eating. It's 30 people in a four-hour period, that's not a lot of people. Believe me, I, I've worked in the restaurant business. And, and so having 30 people in the middle of a lunch rush... I don't ever remember having so few people in the middle of a lunch rush in any of the restaurants that I've worked in unless there was some kind of, uh, I mean, even spring break in Auburn when I was working at Auburn Moe's or during the summer in Auburn wasn't that bad. So th 30 people is basically nothing. But Annette Harris said the other day, we are hurting. I just hope that people will understand why I'm doing this. These are our businesses. They don't belong to the government. Amen, sister. One of my biggest gripes on this whole thing, that I'm somebody that believes in staying at home. I'm somebody that thinks that it was actually a good idea to pull everything back, but I thought it should all be done on a person-to-person -person basis. Leave it up to the citizens. Let them decide. Your average business owner doesn't want to hurt people. They don't want to hurt their clients. They don't want to hurt their employees. They don't want to get hurt themselves. And so they will make judgments and decisions based upon that. And the government has absolutely no business saying to a person, you who own this business are not allowed to bring in other people that want to make purchases from your business. That's not the government's job. And what she said there at the tail end of her quote that, I mean, just rings so true, my business does not belong to the government. It doesn't. How do you define private property? It is the thing with which you can deny access to others. Well, the government is effectively, now granted they're accessing it by saying you can't use it, 
but the government has effectively taken over all of our private property if they're telling us that we're not allowed to use it. By doing so, the government has inserted itself into the relationship between a business owner and their customer, but also between a property owner and their property. That's the thing that people seem to gloss over. And this ridiculous notion that business owners that are opening this up, they just don't care about people, they hate people, and they want them to die, and they're not taking this seriously, she actually speaks to that in this interview, and this is a quote from her as well. I do care. I'm a good person, and that is why I say, if you don't feel this is right for you, don't get out. Stay home. Now think about that. This is a person that runs a business that depends on people coming to their business and spending money on them. That is what she relies on for her livelihood. And she just told people, if you don't feel right about it, if you don't think it's safe, stay home. That's a person that cares about freedom. That's a person that is saying, look, even if it hurts my bottom line, I'm not telling people to come out and engage in risky behavior. This is obviously not somebody that puts profit ahead of people. This is obviously not somebody that took this lightly. She actually said that she held out as long as she could, but she's getting to the point to where she's going to lose her business, she's going to lose her livelihood if she doesn't do this, if she doesn't start turning some revenue. And the idea that all these people are just a bunch of malcontent rebels that are doing this just because they want money more than they want to, to save people or to protect people, that's just insane. And another thing that you'll notice on here too, because she actually said these are the precautions that she took within her business for the people that did come out and wanted to eat with her. And this is via AL.com. She and her staff are taking precautions like sanitizing common surface areas, limiting the number of guests to less than half capacity, placing tables at least six feet apart, removing condiments and menus from tables, and moving drink machines into the kitchen. Somebody that doesn't care or doesn't take this seriously doesn't do all those things. Because those are the kinds of things that customers are going to complain about. Like, you don't have mustard or ketchup right there at your at your, your table, I mean, that's an inconvenience for you. You can't go and refill your own drink. That's an inconvenience for you. But that's a precaution that makes sense because they're trying to stop the spread of this virus. The idea that these people are apathetic or morons or don't care, there's just no truth to it. She also said that she was not requiring employees to come in if they didn't want to. And there were 10 employees at her restaurant that decided that it wasn't worth the risk, that they were just going to stay home. And that's fine. Again, it should be left up to the individuals. Because another lie that people have been trying to peddle about this is that, well, uh, all these people are heartless and they're saying that, you know, you're going to lose your job if you don't come in. Look, there might be a handful of employees out there that would take that attitude, but this person in particular certainly isn't. And the average business is just simply not going to do that. This is a talking point that Rashida Tlaib was parroting that we saw a clip of on the Daily Dose of Stupid a couple days ago that uh, these employers are basically saying, you have a choice, either lose your job or die. Well, that's not happening. Business owners aren't saying that. They would be within their right to do so if that were the case. I mean, any employee that when you say, hey, we're open, and they say, no, I'm not coming in, that, that's your right to fire them if you want to. 
But the average American citizen understands this is a unique situation and they're being as accommodating as possible, like this small business owner is. The latest, which really chaps my hide, is that the authorities were actually threatening to chain and lock her front door and shut her down and remove her permit. In other words, she just wouldn't be able to operate even when this thing opens up. That smacks of tyranny. That's taking away a person's business, their livelihood, their property, because they refuse to comply with your orders? I mean, we don't have time to talk about this today, but that's very, very similar to what was going on in Texas, where the judge was basically saying, you have desecrated the law, you've desecrated these orders, and you need to apologize and admit that you're wrong. I mean, it's very similar to what was happening in 1948, or sorry, 1984, that book by George Orwell, where he's like, no, we have to turn all of the heretics into true believers. We have to change their mind to where they all love Big Brother. This is just absurd. This is basically saying, bow the knee and kiss the ring, or you will be cast out. I don't even recognize my country anymore looking at this. I mean, I'm just absolutely dumbfounded. If the government can tell you that you're no longer allowed to use your business to make money, is there really anything more that they can do? Is there anything worse that they can do to you? Is there anything that is more an indicator of them taking away your freedom than taking your business away from you because you refuse to, even if you're doing so peaceably and not breaking the law? Uh, I just don't understand how this is the country we're living in anymore. What have we become? What are we turning into when we start tolerating this? That the second there's some kind of event, and I'm not saying that it's an insignificant event, that government has the power to just strip everything away from you, including your own private property, the, a business that's been around for decades that you've worked in and built up yourself. If they can do that, what can't they take away from you? All right, that's going to be all we, we have tonight. Uh, I am going to close down the show a little early. I got to go and uh, be with the Bible study. Some people from my church are meeting, so I'm going to go do that. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. We'll see you tomorrow for the Geek End Part 2. Part 2 of the Top 10 Nintendo 64 games of all time is going to be on tomorrow, so we're looking forward to that. And then we'll be back here on Monday. In the meantime, stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.